This morning in our um, Advent lighting, we talked a little bit about Joseph and Mary. And I am always amazed every year as I review the Christmas story and as, as we, we celebrate a story that's familiar but is always to be coming to mind and we're always to be remembering, I'm always amazed at Joseph and Mary's obedience. That, they're, that they surrendered to the instructions of the Savior of, of God when they just didn't make a lot of sense. And in fact, they would lead them down a path of possible ridicule and, and in, a, in a group society being condemned for a pregnancy outside of marriage. But they obeyed because they were humble servants of the King. This morning, as we, we come to 1 Corinthians 4, we're going to talk about being humble servants about surrender, and, and Paul is going to attack very directly the issue of pride. I want to start with a story that I read. Um, during a 1923 training exercise, this goes back a little bit, but there was a naval destroyer called the USS Delphi, and it, it led a flotilla of seven vessels that were coming down the California coast, and the, the Delphi was captained by Lieutenant Commander Donald T. Hunter. I, I knew you'd look up Don. <laughs> um, Donald T. Hunter, an experienced navigator and instructor at the Naval Academy. Without warning, about halfway down on their training mission, a thick blanket of fog descended on the ships. And in the midst of the the fog, and, and they claimed it looked like pea soup, Hunter couldn't get an accurate evaluation of his location. And at that point, he was faced with a decision. However, he was a very confident um, commander, and he knew where he was going. He knew what was where they needed to go. And what he didn't know is that contrary to his calculations, the lead ship was headed right into Devil's Jaw, a, a scant two miles off the California coast. But that didn't stop him, and he just went plowing ahead because he was known for that, that self-confidence and decisiveness and pride. Traveling at 20 knots, suddenly the USS Delphi smashed broadside into Rocky Point Argello shoreline. The force of that massive collision of welded steel and jagged rocks split the hull of the USS Delphi in half. One by one, the other destroyers followed the Delphi's lead and smashed into the rocks. 22 naval men died. The accident resulted in the loss of all seven ships it still stands as one of the worst peacetime naval disasters in history. Why? Because the commander chose to be proud and not stop. He felt he knew the way. He felt he knew it was right. He just went plowing ahead in an unsafe situation, one that needed, showed that he needed to stop, needed to find out where they were. But because of his commitment to self, he couldn't do that. I was thinking about that story as we come to 1 Corinthians 4 and, and, and think about that spiritually because I'm not sure we're that different spiritually. We can condemn him for that and say, well, of course, if you couldn't see, you should have stopped. But spiritually, I would argue that every one of us in this room battles spiritual pride. And we battle, we battle thinking that we have it all together, especially if we've been believers for a long time and, and thinking we know God's Word and we know what is best. And that, hey, we've arrived, we don't really have to learn much more. And spiritual pride at its heart is something that will tear not only our own Christian walks apart, but it will tear the church apart. Because it will cause divisions. It will, it will make breaks in the church. It will stop us from doing God's work. 
And so chapter 4 in 1 Corinthians, we come to the end of four chapters on church divisions. Remember, Paul is talking about the, this, the whole factions in the church. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. Well, I am of Christ. And, and these were, were prideful factions. And as, as Paul has been laying a groundwork of having the same voice for the, the cross of Christ and realizing the difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom, in chapter 4 he just gets down to nuts and bolts. He says, okay, I've given you a lot of foundation. Now I'm just going to lay it out for you. Your problem is you're proud. You're boasting in yourself. And it's spiritual pride. So as we come to that this morning, my prayer is that this chapter steps on every one of our toes. That God uses this chapter to prune, as He's been doing in me all week, to prune every one of us. To say, okay, what areas am I not dependent on Christ? What areas do I think I have it together? What areas am I causing issues in the church? Because this is about building God's church. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's read what Paul has to say. A little later in the book, he's going to say, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In chapter 10, verse 12. And he's already starting that theme in chapter 4, verse 1. Pray with me for a moment. Dear Lord, as we come to your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict our hearts. That that he would pull away any blinders that keep us from hearing the truth of your word. That keep us from being convicted by your word. Lord, help us to truly live godly lives and not give in to this ungodly world. In Jesus' name. So we start in in verses 1 through 5 with the first paragraph. And in your study Bibles, the paragraphs this morning roughly go with our points. And it's really handy that way when that that lines up. But Paul begins by talking about the leaders again. And he's talked about what not to do, right? Don't put them on pedestals. Don't divide over them. And so he starts by saying, okay, so how should you view leaders in a church? How should you view the pastor? How should you view the elders? How should you view teachers? And And Paul here begins in verse 1 by saying, this is how one should regard us. And the us there is probably he and Apollos and Cephas and all that have have part of the teaching ministry at Corinth. This is how you should think about us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And we'll get to the rest of those verses, but I want to go verse by verse. And point number one in your notes is we look at, okay, what views do we have to have to combat spiritual pride, to combat divisions in in the church? The first is we need a right view of leaders. We need to view leaders as entrusted servants of Christ who are answerable to Christ. View church leaders as entrusted servants of Christ, answerable to Christ. So Paul starts with this verse and and he mentions servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And and it's helpful to look at each of these individually. And I, I gave you points A and B there that looks at each one of these. Because how we view our leaders really defines how the church functions. And the pendulum can go too far either direction. The pendulum can go too far to putting like they were doing leaders on pedestals. And a leader walks in the room and oh! And, 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 you know, I should wear robes and maybe get a 10-foot podium here. or Not podium, the thing you stand on. So, you know, 
all of that is more this idea of putting a leader on a pedestal and, and raising them up to almost godlike status. And Paul's already debunked that and said, stop it. Stop it. But the pendulum can go too far the other way to say leaders are nothing. They're just, they're just my buddy. They have no authority. They, they're not casting vision. They're not doing anything in the church different than I'm doing. And that's just as damaging in the church. And so what is a biblical role of leaders in a church? And this is, this is challenging in churches where we hire our leaders. And we, we, we employ them. So how biblically should we view them? And Paul gives two things. Servants and stewards. Letter A there. Leaders are servants of Christ moving His church in His direction. Leaders are servants of Christ moving His church in His direction. It's interesting looking at, at words, and I, I love looking at, at the words that are used here. And the word for servant here is not the normal word that's used. Normally it's a word, diakonos, that we've talked about before. Deacon is what we get that from. It means to serve. This particular word for servant means under rower. Under rower. Okay, a lot of looks like, okay, that's really nice. I have no idea what that means. Keep in mind, Corinth was what kind of town? Ports. How many ports did they have? They had two. You know, the, where one is debased, two is, yeah, really bad. And so they understood ships. And an under rower was the, the servants that sat at the bottom level of the ship under the deck. <clears throat> and if you've seen the ships in movies or something where they have all the holes going out with all the oars going out, the under rowers sat in the dark, damp bottom and rowed the whole time. It was the least desirable servant position on a boat. And that's what Paul says, you need to view us as under rowers. What a great picture of leading God's church and teaching God's church. And, and he specifically says under rowers of, catch it in there, Christ. Okay, so, so you may think you're over us, but actually, Christ is our master. And so I picture the, the ship is his church, and, and Christ is the master, and the, the leaders here, the teachers here, are the under rowers that are all rowing in the same direction. And the, the imagery is so rich, and they would have gotten this in Corinth. Um, does, does one under rower say to the other under rower, I'm better than you? No, you're both under rowers. <laughs> Uh, you, you know what I mean? And, and so this whole idea of, well, Paul's better than Apollos. No, no, they're both under rowers. And so Paul here is establishing this isn't about us. This is about the master's direction. When does an under rower row? When the master says to row. What direction does he take the ship? Wherever the master directs the ship. He's just providing momentum. And, and that's a picture of what leaders should do and how we should view leadership in a church. Servant leadership moves in the direction that God directs as an under rower of the king. So Paul starts by saying we are servants. And as we go through this, we may think, well, okay, that's great for you as a leader. Jumping ahead at the end of the chapter, Paul is going to say, imitate us. Imitate me. And so lest we think that none of this applies to us and that's just for Pastor Ron, um, no, this is for all of us, because Paul says imitate me in being an under rower and doing those things. Second word that he uses is a steward of the mysteries of God. And this is an, an interesting combination of words, because an under rower is the least of all servants at the bottom. 
A steward was the servant that was in charge of the master's property. Um, a master would go away and he would leave a steward that was in charge of the property, the household, and all of the other servants to make sure the household was functioning according to how the master wanted them to function. In this case, it says stewards of the mysteries of God. We talked about that in chapter 2. The mysteries of God is the gospel that we can't understand without the Holy Spirit's insight. And it's a mystery to the non-believer, but to the Christian where the Holy Spirit indwells us, it just is a beautiful, incredible thing. This is the gospel. And Paul, throughout this and through the rest of 1 Corinthians, really the theme is how do we live cross-centered, gospel-centered lives? And so he's saying your teachers are responsible to teach you how to live cross-centered lives, to teach you the mysteries of the gospel, how that works out in life. And so when he uses the idea of steward, he's using something that is a, a term that uses a lot of responsibility, that carries a lot of responsibility. Some, some of you have house sat for me. I have certain expectations when you house sit for me. I want to come home and find a house. You know, it's still st- standing, yes. <laughs> the walls inside, still standing. I don't want to see that there's been huge parties in this house. I, I want to see the animals still alive. That, that's a good thing. And, and, and so there's a responsibility that I give. If I have someone come over and watch my house and my kids, I'm assuming a certain responsibility. That's the second word that Paul is saying here to think of leaders in a church as. Under rowers and servants. And so really he's saying servants of the king with a lot of responsibility. With some authority that comes with that responsibility. I think of Hebrews 13, 17. When I think of the weight of leadership in a church, and and I'm not just talking pastors and elders here, I'm talking every one of you that teaches a class here. Every one of you that is responsible for passing on the truth of God's Word to other people in this congregation. There's a weight to that, isn't there? There should be. James says there's a stricter judgment. In Hebrews 13, 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls. That phrase keeps me awake sometimes. That's that's serious business. They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That phrase keeps me awake too. (laughs) Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so Paul is saying, so how should you view us? Don't put us on a pedestal but we are stewards of the mystery of God. Remember, we're servants and under-rowers of of the King. Verse 2 needs to go with this. Um, It comes with a major requirement. Just like I was saying about house-sitting, there's some expectations. In verse 2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. The requirement is faithfulness. Being trustworthy. In fact, in light of being stewards of the mystery of the gospel, mystery that God has given us, the number one criteria that I would say biblically we should evaluate a teacher by is are they trustworthy to the Word of God? Are they trustworthy to the Word of God? Now, what are we tempted to evaluate teachers by? Style. How funny are they? Pastor Ron told two jokes this morning and I laughed at one of them. That's a 50% mark. You know, sometimes we think that way, don't we? Sometimes it's how relevant are they? 
You know, well, they, they spoke into my life great this week, but not last week. That was just the Word of God. Uh, you know, and, and, and those things now, now I know that we have preferences and I'm not denying that, but ultimately the point of evaluation is are they faithfully teaching God's Word? I don't care if they're the funniest teacher in the world. I don't care if, if they just really touch your heart with great stories. If they are not faithful to God's Word, they do not belong in a leadership position. That's what Paul is saying in verse 2. It is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Joseph, in the Old Testament, was a steward in Potiphar's house. He was trustworthy even though he was accused But the reason he was thrown in jail is because of the accusation that he wasn't trustworthy, even though it wasn't true. Stewards are to be trustworthy. It's not about whether Paul's popular, whether Apollos is is funnier than Paul, but are they faithful to God's Word? So we need a right view of leaders. It goes on in verses 3 through 5. To, to remind ourselves of, okay, who's evaluating the leaders? Because it can be easy after hearing that to now start keeping a scorecard on every, every teacher we hear and on the radio, at church, or whatever. And Paul deals with that in verses 3 through 5. Faithful leaders work for the master's approval, is, is letter C there. Faithful leaders work for the master's approval. It's easy to get caught up in pleasing people. Reading on verses 3 through 5 there. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. I want to unpack that a little bit, because on first reading, it'd be like, okay, I have no idea what I just read. And so you read it over a couple times, and you see a couple things coming up. The first is that Paul's talking about whether or not the, the church at Corinth should be a judging him. And by judging, we mean critiquing, to, to judgment, to examine, and to come to a conclusion. And he's saying, you know, it's a small thing that you guys judge me. And, and looking at these verses and the rest of this chapter in First and Second Corinthians, we, we have to understand the culture there. It really looks like the people there were starting to put down Paul. And to say, well, he's not as eloquent as some of the others, and so he's not as spiritual. And I don't know if we can trust him. And, and they were placing themselves in, in judgment and in critique of Paul. Think about what kinds of attitudes have to get you to the place of thinking you can be in judgment of, of who's teaching. Of Paul. Comes back to pride. He, that's why he's going to go to pride. But he starts by saying, you know, it's really a little thing whether you judge me. And he's not saying he's not concerned about them because we know from Paul's other teachings, he talks about that he's all things to all people and he cares and he's concerned about people. But when it comes to evaluation, there's only one evaluation that matters to him. And that's in verse 4. It's what God thinks. See, if you're a servant of the Master, what, what another servant says about your job doesn't matter nearly as much as what the Master says about your job. Make sense? If you have a coworker that says, you know, that you should be doing these five things, but your boss has said, no, you should be doing these things, which one do you go with? You go with the boss. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, I'm going with the boss. My, my, my master is Jesus Christ. I'm a servant, an underrower of Christ. And so that's who gets to say what I should do. And I can just hear the people 
as they were talking about Paul, well, he should be doing this better, or he should be doing this better. And and it's a lot like, some of you like sports, we have some football games today. What do you hear after the games on the talk show? You hear all the things the manager should have done, right? Which is great after the game when you know how everything turns out. But it's sort of silly. Because none of us are the manager of that team. And that's what they're doing to Paul. Even though they're not apostles, they're not gifted in this, they're not called to this, but they're very critical of what he's doing. Just as a side note, this works both ways too. We have to be careful of adulations from people and praise from people when you're teaching and in leadership positions. They also are not your source of approval. It's about what God thinks. It's what it comes down to. But then in verse 4, so, so we have to be careful of pleasing people. It's not about pleasing people. It's about pleasing God. But in verse 4, he brings in another aspect of it. I'm not aware of anything against myself. So he says, I have a clear conscience. I don't see anything I should be doing differently, but I am not thereby acquitted. That doesn't, that doesn't work for me either, he says. Because it is the Lord who judges me. And so we want to be careful of, of blindly trusting our own assessment of ourselves. See, the thing about sin, the thing about pride, is it's blinding. And, and, and it desperately doesn't want to be seen and doesn't want to be found out. And so when we are, are dealing with sin that is unconfessed, oftentimes we're so convinced we're not sinning. And, and we don't want to hear that we're sinning. And we just don't want to even go down that path because sin is blinding. So we cannot trust our own judgments of ourselves. We have to go back to God through His Word, through His Spirit, and say, what do you want me to be doing? Evaluate my life. As, as David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my ways. Verse 5 there. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and who will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God or his reward from God. He ends by saying it's not your place to be judging these things. Trust God. Trust that the Master knows. So he starts in verses 1-5 through with helping them have a right view of leaders. Not on pedestals, but not nothings, under rowers that are stewards of God's work in the church. Then he gets down to it. From six on, he just gets a little bit snarky, for those of you that like that word. (laughs) Um, A little bit sarcastic. I would argue this is one of the most sarcastic sections of Scripture that we have um, from Paul. Because he is trying to be very pointed and illustrate what's going on. And so in in verses 6 and 7, he begins to help them have a right view of spiritual growth. Any growth is God's work. You didn't do it. Any growth is God's work, so you didn't do it. And what's he attacking by saying that? He's attacking their spiritual pride. Look at how far I've come. Let's read verses 6 and 7. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos, for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us. And, and there, there's a lot of interesting phrasing there, but basically he's saying, up till now I've been a little indirect. I've been giving you foundational principles. I've been applying them to Apollos and I. 
to use as an example for you, but now I want you to learn. And he says that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. And again, a lot of discussion of what that means. Some people says maybe he was talking about a proverb of the time or a saying of the time. The thing is, whenever Paul uses that phrasing, what is written, he's talking about Scripture. And in the last three chapters that we've studied, he's quoted Scripture six times. And each time saying, don't put men on pedestals, stop boasting, stop being so prideful. And I think the best explanation for don't go beyond what is written is he's referring to the Scripture he just quoted. Don't get out of line from Scripture. Scripture, I've just shown you, Scripture says not to boast. He says don't go beyond that. Trust that. And I think that's supported by the next phrase, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And there's the root cause. A puffing up, a pride, a boasting. I want to be in a better group than you. Remember we've talked about the patronage system and and that each patron had a certain number of clients that they, they gave grace to, that they gave supplies to. And so your worth, your esteem, was based on who your patron was. It was about self-esteem and about pride and looking good in front of others. And Paul confronts that. So he says that none of you may be puffed up in favor one against another. And then he uses three rhetorical questions in seven. Who, what, and why? And he starts by saying, for who sees anything different in you? And that's a phrase that basically means, who do you think you are? Do you really think you're that superior? Who sees anything different in you? And then he goes to what? What do you have that you didn't receive? And that's where I get the point from. When they're, when they're boasting about how spiritual they, they are, Paul is saying, that's not from you. That's all a gift from God. And then he says, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why do you say you earned it? It's the saying uh, that sometimes I've heard about the the privileged. It's like they were born on third base and think they hit a triple. (laughs) He's like, you didn't do this. Spiritual growth comes from the Holy Spirit. We have nothing inside of ourselves to make ourselves spiritual. It's only by going to God, by going to His Word, by His work in us. Which is really quite a relief if you think about it. You know, we need to be blown away by what God has done. And the relief is that I don't have to somehow find a way to grow. I just have to be in God's Word and be in tune with Christ and let Him help me grow. I don't deserve it. Praise God for His grace. I can't earn it. Praise God for His work on the cross. I owe everything to Christ. You owe everything to Christ. And so who should get the glory? Christ. The Corinthians were saying, look what I've done. Look what I've done. And one, one young pastor went to another pastor and says, please pray for me and help, me, help keep me humble. And the older pastor said, well, what do you even have to be proud about? That's the right answer. Because everything we have in Christ is from Christ. And so Paul, in point number two, gives a right view of spiritual growth 
Any growth is God's work. Don't think you did it. And he's challenging the Corinthians with that, but I challenge us with that. We have to depend on God to grow with Christ. And that really leads into three. In fact, some people combine points two and three. I think there's a little bit of a difference, but three, we need to have a right view of self. A right view of self. Don't think of yourself as having arrived or more mature than others. Don't think of yourself as having arrived or as being more mature than others. I just want to read 8-13 through 13 together so you get the tone. Already, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Hearing it? For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Oh, but you are wise. In, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working hard with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And that verse is where we get the title this morning, Like Scum. And if Paul was willing to say we've become like scum, I think that's probably good enough for us too. But the tone of this section is, is, is one of, of biting sarcasm to try to break through their, their self-delusionment and show them what's going on here. Because as you look at those first verses, it looks like they were satisfied with where they were. We've grown. You came three years ago. We accepted you. Now We accepted Christ. And now we've grown. We have it all together. We've made it. And they were thinking of themselves more highly than they ought. They were full of themselves. And Paul's going to call them on it. I have four different categories of ways to think. And these are loose categories. But it looks like Paul first attacks self-sufficiency in verse 8. Self-sufficiency. Because he uses words like already you have all you want. And that word was used for you've gotten enough food and you're full. You're satisfied. And and the illusion here can't be missed. You've gotten all the spiritual food you need. You're full. You don't need to grow anymore. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And that's dealing with they have everything they need and the kings that they they are in control of their, their circumstances. They're secure. They don't need anything. Do you remember Revelation 3, the church at Laodicea? Let me just read those verses. See if there's a similarity. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so in verse 8, we see the self-sufficiency. I've arrived. I don't need anything. And as we've talked, the church was just taking in the culture of the time. And part of the Stoic philosophy of the Greek culture was this idea of self-sufficiency. They had a phrase that was one of their rallying cries. I alone am rich. I alone reign as king. 
That was in the secular society. And so Paul here is directly addressing what's going on in the city of Corinth. A Greek historian living at that time, Plutarch, said uh, of a wise man and what it means to be wise, the wise man is termed not only prudent and just and brave, but also an orator, a poet, a general, a rich man, and a king. And they count themselves worthy of all these titles. And if they fail to get them, they are vexed. I like that word. Very put out. The culture of the time said to be wise, you needed to be self-sufficient. And so the church was taking the culture of the time and just swallowing it whole and not realizing that God has a different way. And so the world was invading the church at Corinth rather than the church at Corinth invading the world. Paul ends verse 8 with, with a little bit of sarcasm. Oh, I wish you were. Maybe, maybe some of your splendor would rub off, rub off on us. You could sure make everything great for us. But then he goes on and says, actually for us, the apostles, life isn't so good. We must not have arrived as much as you have. And that's the sarcasm there. They were self-dependent rather than God-dependent. If you want to pray one of the scariest prayers you will ever pray, pray, God, make me dependent on you. God, make me dependent on you. Because the way that he'll do that is to leave you with nothing else to depend on. But it's the right place to be. Oh God, make me dependent on you. So Paul attacks self-sufficiency. In verses 9 and 10, Paul attacks pride and and status-seeking. This idea that my reputation is everything. Um, Verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. And we have to understand the illustration here that he's using is that of a, a gladiator arena. And people being paraded or exhibited in that arena. And, and there are two possibilities for this. Both, I think, mean the same thing. One is that after a war, the, the conquering general would parade into the arena all of the, the people that were captured, and at the end, he would keep the kings and the generals that were sentenced to death. And they would come in at the end, and then they would kill them. Uh, it could be that, or it could be that in the games, they, they would have gladiator games at this time, and at the end, they would bring out the, the prisoners that are weak and that are, are sentenced to death and let them fight the lions. And, and so, either way, Paul is saying, we are exhibited as last of all. We are, are basically men under, under a, a, a death threat for the gospel, for the king. And you're worried about how somebody thinks about you? It's not what what Christianity is about. That's not what following Christ is about. It's about surrender and saying, I'll do anything as an under rower of the King. It doesn't matter what people think of me. And Paul's already talked about that. It matters what God thinks of you. And so Paul says, we as apostles, we're, we're under a death sentence. We've become a spectacle to the world. And he's using spectacle here as someone to be looked down on to angels and to men. 
And then he goes on in verse 10 to give three contrasts here that are all about status-seeking and, and imagery. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. And this, we have to understand that as sarcasm. He's not saying they're really wise in Christ, but that they think they're wise in Christ. They think they've arrived. We're fools for Christ's sake. You're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. And he deals with areas of intellect, position, status. Compare that with 1 Corinthians 1, 27, verse we looked at a few weeks ago. And, and the same three things come up. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He warned them about it in chapter 1. In chapter 4, he confronts them with it and says, that's you. That's you. Status, reputation, popularity, acceptance of others, those are lousy standards to decide how to live life. Those are not proper standards that will ever get us to a godly life. I was reading one article about different things people say to us and, and maybe backhanded compliments that inadvertently show that we're giving into culture. You know, maybe, uh, what if you got a compliment like, wow, you're a lot more fun to party with than most Christians I know. Not a compliment, even though the world means it. You're not at all wimpy like other Christians in this office. You go for the jugular. Not a compliment. Most Christians I know never quit talking about Jesus, but you always make me feel comfortable. And those are, are, are statements that, that show a, a desire for popularity and acceptance rather than speaking the truth of the Gospel. When we're living for the Gospel, we might hear other things. Like, come on, man, you make everything about Jesus. Don't, don't gossip about Bob in front of the preacher over there. He'll just go all bleeding heart and tell us to pray for him again. What do people think of us? Paul says it's not about reputation, status, and popularity. It's about the truth of God's Word. We need to keep moving. Verses 11 and 12, Paul attacks self-pleasing attitudes. And he uses the, the, his own experiences, the experience of the apostles to do it. To the present hour, and Paul's saying, even right now, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed. We don't have everything we need. We don't have enough. We're buffeted, which meant to be brutally beaten. We're homeless because we're traveling around. We, we don't have a nice house like you do. And we labor, working with our own hands. Remember, Paul made tents um, to, to survive. And, and to labor was looked down on in this society. Oh, the poor dregs had to labor. And so Paul here is addressing self-pleasing attitudes. All of these things refer to sacrifice, surrender for the king. It's not about how much stuff we have or how much we're enjoying life. It's about how many people have been discipled for the king. And Paul's calling him on it. We go on in 12b, and Paul finally attacks self-protection. 
When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. And that's a word for speak kindly of or speak encouraging words about. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And I think about those things because they really reflect the Sermon on the Mount and and Christ when He said in Matthew 5, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. When He then goes on to say, turn the other cheek if someone hits you, if someone despises you. And and again, the church at Corinth had, had taken in the values of the city. And in the value, in Greek values, you always defended yourself. You never let anyone give any, any guff to you. You never allowed that to happen because that was a sign of not being manly. And so there was this whole attitude of, I, I am going to take care of this right now. I am going to confront you right now. I am not going to let anyone do anything to me. And that is sin. And that's the, 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 the worldly values of Corinth that Paul is saying, We don't even do that. When reviled or cursed, we don't get defensive, but we bless. When persecuted, we endure under it. When slandered, we go ahead and speak kindly about the person rather than answering in in the same way. Now picture that kind of self-defensiveness. When people started saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, what happens in the church then? Man, you're fighting all over the place because now everybody's defending their position. And that escalates into just a war within the church that will never result in a unified church doing God's work. God doesn't teach, I'm not going to take this and so I'm going to get back at you. He teaches, love your enemies. A very different perspective. And then Paul says, we are like the scum of the world. And scum being that, that layer of junk that, that is left on things that needs to be cleaned off. And, and, and he's not saying he is scum, but they're like scum, that they, they're willing to place themselves as humble servants for the king. Last point there, Paul is asking them to have a right view of instruction. To humbly listen to and heed am, admonition. And I think this one flows out of the others, but let me read at verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And he, he, he comes back to this loving, fatherly role. He knows that he's been harsh. He knows that he's directly addressed things. He says, I'm not trying to, to just shame you. I'm trying to help you grow and to change, help you change. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. A guide was a servant that would take the kids to school and bring them home and sort of escort them to educational opportunities. But he's saying, you can have lots of those, but you only have one Father. For I became your Father in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. He founded the church. I urge you then, be imitators of me. And what a great way to teach. To say, copy me. Be imitators of me. Faithful fathers are good examples. In our families and in the church. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon. 
if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. It's not about what they say they can do. It's about how they're living. You know, one of my sons always says, oh, I can do that. We're taking heavy stuff onto the roof for Christmas. And I'm like, and I'm going to need some help for this piece. He's like, well, I can just go do that. Right. Go try. And and sometimes that's what we end up doing. Okay, go try. Okay, actions expose words. That's what Paul is saying here. I'll find out not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Faithful Father's discipline. And we see that in verse 21. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Man, if I heard that, you want me to come with a rod or a whip, the word means? Or do you want me to come with, a, with love and a spirit of gentleness? And he's a father admonishing his spiritual children. And pride often exposes itself that we aren't willing to be admonished. Or when somebody corrects us, we, we, we get defensive and we react against it and we get angry and we try to prove that we're not wrong instead of just accepting it and repenting and heeding admonition. This is what Paul's confronting them with. And so at the end of it all, at the end of the divisions, he says it's about your pride, your spiritual pride. You need to have a right view of your leaders. You need to have a right view of spiritual growth. You need to have a right view of yourself and not think more highly of yourself than you ought. You need to have a right view of admonition and take it. Seek it out because that's how you'll grow. My prayer is that that helps us as a church. That we are constantly on guard against our spiritual pride. Against thinking we've arrived. And that we are growing together and that we are under rowers together for the King. Before I close in prayer, I, I want to share just a little bit of some opportunities for under rowing together. Um, in, in your worship folder, you have um, a, a flyer. looks something like this, or actually exactly like this. And this Christmas season is, is an opportunity for us to under row together. And what I mean by that is we have a number of ministry opportunities. Next week is our Christmas celebration service, and and we're going to be sharing the Christmas story, and we're going to be sharing the gospel. What a great time to invite somebody. Invite a friend. Have them stay for lunch afterwards. The week after that is our, our children's play, and that's going to share the gospel. Invite them. Bring people out to those things. This Saturday is a chance that we have to touch our community. And, and how many of you have done Project Touch with us before Christmas Touch? Most of the congregation. And this is something we do where we give um, a, a track, but a gift to, to all the houses in our neighborhood here. And we have seen amazing results from this. It takes a few years, but we've seen families coming to church. We've seen families coming to Christ because of that contact. And so that's an opportunity. I would, I would encourage you and I would challenge you to, to say, can you spend an hour and a half this Saturday as a church reaching this community? I would love to see over a hundred of us there, which is over half of us in this room right now. All ages can come. Families come and minister together. We go as a family and take five at a time. We'll be putting together some candy and some mugs and giving it out. Um, really just giving it out saying Merry Christmas from Village Bible Church. 
and, and it's something anyone can do. Challenge you, step out of your comfort zone and join us. Row together with us. There's some other opportunities there. We're doing a, a gift drive for Orangewood Children and Family Center. Um, it's right over near us, and, and several of us families have children that were there at, at some point in time. And there's tags on the tree outside. If you just take a tag and buy a gift, um, there, the tags don't say boy or girl. We don't know exactly how many boys and girls are there. We just have age ranges. So just make it clear on your gift. And there's some instructions there, but find a way to participate. And what I'd like to do before we sing a last song is just pray together for some of these outreach opportunities. Sometimes we view outreach as just sort of something added on that we do. Make ourselves feel a little better at Christmas time that we reached out. But outreach is one of our core values. It's part of who we are as a church. It's the first step in discipling our community for Him. And so, if it's that important, is it important enough to spend a couple minutes praying for? Absolutely. Lord, I pray that you would use some of these things to touch lives for you. Lord, that as the church leaves the building, as we are your church out in the neighborhood, out in our own neighborhoods, that we would find ways to share the gospel. I pray that Saturday when we give these gifts and this tract and the invitations to church, that there would be at least one home where somebody is touched with the gospel. Lord, help us to take this gift from you seriously the responsibility we have as stewards seriously. That, Lord, we haven't earned this, but we can pass it on. What an incredible gift of your salvation. Lord, I pray that you would work through these things to do your work to build your church. In Jesus' name, amen.